you do a lot of uh, I know you do a lot of charity work. Can you talk a little bit about that right now? Oh, I know boy. you work for St. Boniface Hospital. I see you there all the time, and every time you're on TV, and I'm like, hey, there's my buddy, there's my buddy. <laughs> talk about an organic um, relationship. Yeah. Uh, St. Boniface Hospital, I'm not Catholic. Never been Catholic. I'm as secular as they come, I like to say. <laughs> Agnostic <laughs> is probably the more accurate terminology. Uh, for how I view religion. And so St. Boniface Hospital was never on my radar. HSC, that's, that. you know, when I was in Winnipeg, that's yeah. where I went, Health Sciences Center, yeah. Children's Hospital, spent a lot of time there as a kid. Yeah. And so St. B was just not on my radar, but my wife said, that's where our children shall be born. And of course, um, fate intervened a little bit in that because of the doctor, because of having twins higher risk pregnancy and yeah. Dr. Helloa, who is one of the primary uh, leaders anywhere in Canada on multiple births ended up being uh, our doctor and being Jackie's doctor and guiding us through the pregnancy. And so it was sort of decided that's where the boys would be born. Anyway, uh, July 30th, 2006, my boys arrive eight weeks early. Jackie and I don't even have, an overnight bag because we're under the impression this is false labor and we'll yep. be back home in a couple of hours. Well, no, we left the house at about, uh, about five 30 Sunday morning. And by 11, 11, both boys had been born. Wow. That's yeah. Quick. It did. It happened very quick. We didn't even have a camera, David. <laughs> we had to borrow a camera from uh, somebody. My mother-in-law knew, and we had 25 people in the waiting room, right? So you're yeah. expecting, how does, how does it go now? Uh, baby's born, say at 10 o'clock in the morning, you've got visitors in the, in the room by three, four o'clock in the afternoon, and you're maybe going home the next day. Yeah. We ended up. Um, not, not with preemies. I had no idea, had no idea what we were in store for. First time I heard of the neonatal intensive care unit, I was standing in the middle of it. Yeah. And the nurse is telling me about what the next month is going to be like. What do you mean like next month? month? Are my babies coming home with me today? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. So um, that was my first introduction to St. Boniface Hospital. And they took good care of not only my babies, but of Jackie and I as parents. One Friday, they told us, we've all decided you guys aren't allowed to come here tonight. We had a 12-hour yeah. moratorium of when we were allowed to be in the NICU. And we went to dinner, went to see the Dixie Chicks. And at 12.01, after midnight, we were in the NICU. Right in. <laughs> that wasn't the intention. Well, you know, you got to be more specific. Yeah. So that experience obviously tied me greatly to St. Boniface and then started ho hosting their health report program for them quite out of accident when I got into the radio world. And the relationship grew and grew from there. And they gave me an opportunity and a platform to share my story. I, you know, I got to meet doctors and nurses and researchers and, and some of the medical leaders in our community who I just tried to talk to and speak with the way you and I are right now and learn more and, and hopefully educate our listeners at the same time through my curiosity and then they asked me to be a spokesperson for their lottery and, and I host different events for them. And, and, you know, I don't think of it as 
charity work or anything other than it's just a relationship. It's something that I do for them because of what they've done for me. And um, so if it's recognized and viewed that way, I thank you. I just, it's just part of the package deal, right? Uh, They love me. I love them. And uh, I, I do anything for that organization. And there's no way that I could ever say enough thank yous for what they did. I, I, you know, I had two babies that were barely, barely eight pounds each. And you maybe hear them banging around upstairs. They're over 12 feet tall combined now, <laughs> you know, and yeah, they're, they're big just, guys. They're big I've boys. Seen, they just yeah, turned 15, you know? So yeah. once again, you talk about gratefulness and perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere in our house every single day, man. My, uh, my oldest grandson was born at St. B and spent eight weeks in NICU because he was, he was, uh, eight weeks premature. I think he was four pounds and something. Mm-hmm. So almost lost my daughter, uh, that time. Uh, and she's doing good now. They were just here a few minutes ago and, uh, he's, he, uh, came out of with, with cerebral palsy because of his birth, but he's one determined little boy. Well, he's not so little anymore. He's going to be a big boy too, but he's 10 years old now and uh, 10 and a half. He's, he's, he's a lot of fun, but yeah, I, I didn't know much about NICU before he was in there. No, you know, there, there's no, no matter how much health class you go to in high school or all these things that we get told as guys, I don't, Maybe it's just me, but I do not like that stuff would go in one ear and out the other ear. It's just like, you know, at just even with health issues, you know, like we're going to live forever. We're strong. We play, yeah. we, you know, I played hockey. I play rugby. You know, I did all these. I was a, a long distance runner. Like I'm doing all the right things. Sure. <laughs> you know, we don't think about the issues. That's for other people that don't do what we do. Yeah. Oh, that's you know? fair. That's fair. And so, um, when you realize that the safety net that we have in terms yeah. of the healthcare, and I know a lot of people bitch about the healthcare system and that it's slow and that it's not responsive. And that's not ever been my experience. Now, that's not to mean it's been perfect in my view, uh, in terms of the challenges of me getting healthy. Yeah. I've had challenges along the way. Uh, but I look back and I go, yeah, they didn't know about brain injury in 2000, what we know now. Thank you, Sidney Crosby, for some of the things that, that have come yeah. to the forefront in terms of how easy it is to, to injure your brain and what a concussion really is and, and CTE. And uh, God bless all those athletes that, that lived the hell that they lived, you know, for the sake of entertaining. And, and yeah, they made some money along the way, but you know, you look at the list of NFL players that, that have taken their own lives or have, have died in their, in their forties and their fifties, it's heartbreaking. And it's because of the damage done to their brain and their ability to make cognizant and, and make good decisions. And, 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 I mean, I'm not an expert on the CTE by any stretch, but go back 20 years. We didn't know the CTE. What is that? Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness it evolves, right? And medical knowledge evolves and science evolves. And, and now, now we know that just a 
you know, a dramatic jar one way or the other to your head can mess you up for a year. Not yeah. everybody. No, it, it's it just, just the way it goes. Just depends. Different I, kind of lottery, right? Not the one we want to win, but yeah. here we are. You you love football, and I'm, I would imagine you had the chance more than once or whatever to speak with Matt Dunnigan. Lots and of times. When I, yeah, when I first had or when I first heard him talking about concussions, um, that was early on in my, fairly early on in my journey, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter the timeline, but when I heard him talking about it so openly and candidly, I believe it was with uh, Michael Landsberg, the first time I heard him talk about this, and I thought Matt Donegan he was in my in my opinion he was a great quarterback and he looked so fit he, i i liked his play i i don't know why i liked his play he was and fearless I, he was yeah. absolutely fearless he was the the epitome of a leader yeah Just go back and and read up on what he did in order to play in the 1991 gray cup game in winnipeg like give me a break yeah you know i just had a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago about that and he listed the three the three shots that he took in order to play in that game twenty five below at Winnipeg Stadium on basically uh, concrete disguised as a uh, green carpet, you yeah. know. And then, like you say, here's the guy. This is how Matt Dunnigan describes football to me. I think it was the first time I interviewed him. We didn't play football when we were kids. We played a game called Kill the Guy with the Football. <laughs> <laughs> growing up in deck <laughs> whoever had the ball you killed that you killed that guy that yeah, was the game Texas. that was the goal of the yeah. game and that was his introduction to the game that he ended up playing for a living right yeah and it's the game that ultimately cost him a lot yeah um but i think you're you're probably you know his openness about you know multiple he's he's easily into a dozen concussions yeah. I think he's. I think he's got a, a half a dozen or eight. I think he talks about that are documented. Like, come on, you know he's got way yeah. more than that. And so, yeah, when a guy like that, who epitomizes what it is to be a football player, can come out and talk as openly and honestly as he has about how concussion and brain injury has changed his life, you know you've turned a corner. I don't know if that's yeah. where you were going. But that's that's the way I see Matt Dunnigan. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, an athlete like him, I would not expect it to come out of him to to speak so openly because that doesn't fit the image, right? It doesn't fit what the stereotype should be of a tough football player. And he was damn tough on the on the field, and even tougher in life. And that heart, I think. Like I, I like to, uh, I say sometimes I like the way people play or I, I'm more, I see more the heart of somebody than I see what they're actually doing or what they say, you know? And I think that's what's attracted me to Matt Dunnigan is that he's got such a heart, uh, obviously for others, because if he didn't have a heart for others, he wouldn't be speaking out about it. No, no. He wants to help. He wants to. And I've never met the guy. You you have that experience that I don't have. 
I'm just saying what I see from the few times I see him throughout the year on TV. And I, I don't watch a whole lot of football, but I I could I could listen to Matt all day long. Listen, you know. He, no, I think and I I think your perception is correct. And and listen, if you added up the total time I've spoken to Matt Dunnigan, it, it's probably a grand total of fifty-five minutes. Yeah. Um, but he's had an impact and he's a guy that uh when I text message him, he at least pretends to know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes across as, you know, uh, you know, what does he say? He's got this little saying here and at the end of it. I know I listen, half the people watching this right now are gonna think we set this up. I had no idea you were gonna bring up Matt Dunnigan, right? <laughs> I didn't know either. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um Oh, ready, break, ready, break. That's how he ends every email. That's how he ends every text message. That's his huh. approach to life. Ready, break, you know, at the end of the huddle. Yeah. And it's like so damn inspiring, David. It's just, so I, I think your perception uh, and mine is very similar. So uh, I think when somebody is genuine about who they are and how they conduct how they go about their business it's kind of easy to say yeah that's who that guy is yeah that's sort of the highlight there and you know when you see these football players now these days these athletes um yeah there's a ton of sacrifice there's a ton of reward but when you talk about you know when you speak to the winnipeg jets and different hockey organizations and the blue bombers it's it's about culture and creating uh, teams where where guys are are prepared to be family, they're prepared to be vulnerable, they're prepared to be honest with one one another. And the slogan in the Winnipeg Blue Bomber dressing room this year was essentially fit in or or get out. It's not as quite as polite as that, but yeah. fit in or get out. And and that's got certain connotations as well. I won't deny that. Yeah. But in speaking to the players mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, leading up to the Grey Cup, there's a love there. There's a connection there. It's not about, you know, um, that 1960s, 1970s mentality. You're one of you know, either you're with us, or you're against us. There's some of that, but it's yeah. more about fitting in and learning about guys as individuals. Um, Jamarcus Hardrick, one of the biggest guys on the team, on the Blue Bombers, one of their offensive linemen, didn't have a dad growing up. He's now got three kids of his own. And he told me that before a game, he puts a towel over his head and he gets really quiet and he thinks about life, about his journey, how lucky he is to be where he is in this life, despite how he grew up. And, and he says he gets to tears every single, every single game under that towel. And he went on to tell me that most of the conversations that he has with his head coach, his boss, have nothing to do with football. They have to do with life. And probably more importantly for uh, Big Yoshi, as he's called, parenting. He says, I know more about parenting from Mike O'Shea than any single person on this planet. I didn't have a dad growing up. And so... For as much as I don't really want my kids playing football, I still love the game. For as much as I know what can happen to guys that play football, 
these guys know the score now. I feel really bad for the guys that played in particular in the 70s and the 80s and maybe even more so in the 90s when the leagues knew a lot more than they were letting on and letting these guys tackle the way they did and lead with their head and helmet to helmet and head to head contact that they've tried to get out of the game. These guys know the score now. Um, yeah, it's pretty magical to, to hear their stories and maybe where we started the power of perspective and yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome that, um, that these athletes that we uh, see as these world beaters, they all have their issues themselves too, right? Yeah. Football is yeah. just a couple hours a day. Yeah. So I like to uh, always ask my guests, and I didn't prep you for this at all. I like to ask my guests, because we're kind of a trucking podcast, kind of, what is a favorite trip you've been on or uh, something memorable? If you are sitting talking with some people that may not know you as well and you have to tell a story of some kind about some trip what would be the most memorable trip that you like to talk about boy i've been really lucky to be on <laughs> some doozy road trips over the years yeah. uh the one that i learned the most about myself and the one i learned most about america though was in 1988 you mentioned my mgb i've had that yeah. vehicle since i was 16 years old it lived in vancouver for a couple of years and then my grandfather and i took the greyhound bus to vancouver and drove it back from vancouver to winnipeg through the coquihalla over the mountains through the through the rockies and then a few months later i went on a little bit of my own adventure to north carolina in that car all by myself ill-advised i was thinking about it today all the stupid things I did as a, as a 19 year old on that trip. Gosh, I never should have lived <laughs> including, uh, falling asleep well, pulling over and sleeping on, uh, I, is it I 94 from Minneapolis to Chicago, uh, to Madison yeah. pulling off on the shoulder and the state trooper giving me the, the knock on the glass to wake me up. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the story that changed uh, a lot of things for me or the experience was with a trucker. We were, uh, we were in between Indianapolis and Louisville, Kentucky. I, I can't remember what interstate that is. And he'd broken down on the side of the road. And well, you know me well enough to know I'm kind of a helper guy. Yeah. <laughs> a little naive, but, uh, <laughs> I pulled over and, and asked this guy if I could help him out. And he said, gee whiz. He says, I've been here for 45 minutes. Nobody's even batted an eyelash. He looked at my license plate. Ah, oh, Manitoba. It was the only guy I had, the only person I'd interacted with in three days that had any idea where Manitoba was. So he was good in my books. Yeah. And I just said, Hey, can I get, do you need a ride? He said, Yeah. He says, If you could drive me to Louisville, that would be great. It wasn't far. We were maybe 20, 25 miles from Louisville. So we're driving south through Indiana. Then you cross the Ohio River into Kentucky. I'm sure you've done, you know, the bridge. We've yeah. got the welcome to Kentucky sign over the trestle bridge there, the steel trestle bridge. And um, so we get talking and by the way, the guy's a big black guy. Like he's six, three, probably two fifty, big guy. He's in my little MG and we're cruising along. And then it gets to the point where we get to Louisville and I, and I ask him, 
where he needs to go. And he says, Greg, he's got a big, deep voice. Greg, where I need to go and you and I can be seen together are two different things. Yeah. Hit me hard. Uh, I grew up in the West End of Winnipeg. Most of my friends, either they were from other countries or their parents were from different countries. I was a minority for the most part, white, the white guy at Daniel Mack in 1987. Mm, I'm not going to say we were like 5%, but we were 45% Filipino guys. Uh, in my circle, I was the only white dude. Like of my six best friends, I was the only white guy. And I really, I just like, what do you mean? He says, you're going to have to drop me off downtown and my wife will come and pick me up. I was perfectly willing to drive him wherever he needed to go. And I subsequently had three or four other experiences on that trip while I was in North Carolina and on my way home that just opened my eyes to, to the way life is in that part of the world. And I love going to America. I love visiting with Americans, but here we are 35 years later and I'm still trying to square that circle. And I still see all those years later, the, the, the warts of those ex personal experiences that I've had um, rearing their head. And so um, not a bad experience, just eye-opening and unforgettable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell you, we're brothers. I, I, in that, in those years, I was living in Delaware. Okay. And, uh, uh, I was delivering something in a, in a, in a town on, on the other side of the river from Philadelphia, Chester, New Jersey, mm -hmm. which is worse than just about anywhere else, especially in those, in those days. And, uh, the receiver, you know, it was taking a long time to unload my trailer. It was a mess. There was, anyway, it was, it was a mess. And so he's like, Hey, you want to come for lunch? And I'm like, sure. And I'm just this white Canadian boy. I don't think anything of it. Right. Same as you. Sure. And, uh, so he and I walk into this, I don't even know what it was, maybe a bar, maybe a, it's a hangout of some kind. And I'm the only pale face around. And the place just goes dead, quiet. And this this dude I was with was a big guy as well, and he kind of puts his arm around me because, especially in those days, I was not a not chubby. And he just puts his arm around me and says, "He's with me." <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and it was just I didn't like. I okay. You know, it's like, yeah, let's go out for lunch, you know? Sure. That's <laughs> uh, funny. That's the gift of travel, though, right? And the gift yeah. of, you know, and, and eh, I don't really want to go down that road again, but I wouldn't trade, yeah. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because yeah. it gave me a perspective all these years later that's um, a, irrefutable, you know, when, when people want to have a conversation about how, you know, race relations in America are, well, I've got a couple of examples. They're not all from 1988. I've got some recent ones too. Yeah. They just, one justifies the other. And it also justifies my faith in, in humanity that, 
you know, we're, we're, we're really all in this together. I've, I've never ever felt as though I was in trouble because of, you know, who I was or the color of my skin, except for maybe once. And that's because I had my family with me. We made a bad decision. And, you know, I, I, to this day, I feel guilty about feeling the way I felt, but uh, crime statistics don't lie. I suppose we were in the wrong part of Chicago on the bus and yeah, we were going from the museum that was near the lake all the way across South side of Chicago and um, we were trying to get to the Dan Ryan because they've got the E train that, or the, 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 yeah, the, the, the E runs right down the middle of the Dan Ryan. And uh, one nice old lady, we pulled the cord and she says, my boy, you don't get off at this stop. You won't make it to the next one. Yeah. You know, and that's wow. So uh, yeah, there you go. There's my travel one. One travel story that uh, extended a little longer than maybe it should have. <laughs> what uh, what final thoughts do you have for us, Greg? 